Jeremiah chapter 45, this evening, Jeremiah 45, it, there's a old expression that playing second fiddle in an orchestra is one of the hardest places to be, because you're not actually playing the, the melody or such, you're playing supporting often harmonizing notes, creating chords. You're often playing, and, uh, and of course, you don't get all the glory. You don't get all the, the applause as the first fiddlist would and such. And uh, this can be true in sports teams. Uh, this can be true in businesses. Uh, there's very interesting things that when you play a supporting role in those kinds of uh, uh, um, atmospheres, sometimes the people will get all the glory. It, it, it involves your work, but they get the glory. They get the, the, the applause. They get the, the ones who say, yes, way to go. In the text we're going to read, we're going to read about Jeremiah's servant. And his name is Barak, and uh, he makes numbers of uh, uh, appearances in the book of Jeremiah. He was his scribe, he was his friend. And uh, he, at this moment, is having a tough time, and it's very interesting, it's you read the book of Jeremiah, there are prophecies, and God does speak to King Nebuchadnezzar through Jeremiah. He say, he, Jeremiah would send him letters, you're going to take this land, you're going to do this. Uh, he would speak to the king of Israel, specifically. But very, very rarely does the word of God take time to talk to an individual like, very personally, like God does in this chapter of chapter 45 of Jeremiah. And I believe this is just a very encouraging, we would see it maybe as a gift of the Spirit today in the, in the New Testament church. It's receiving a word. But I want to think about this man and where he's at in his life at this particular moment. Jeremiah 45, beginning in verse 1 says, the prophet Jeremiah gave this message, gave a message to Barak, son of Nirah, in the fourth year of the reign of Joachim, the son of Josiah, after Barak had written down everything Jeremiah had dictated to him. And he said, this is what the Lord God, the God of Israel, says to you, Barak. You have said, I am overwhelmed with trouble. Haven't I had enough pain already? And now the Lord has added more. I am a worm from sighing and find no rest. Barak, is this what the Lord, uh, this is what the Lord says. I will destroy the nation that I built. I will uproot what I planted. Are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't do it. I will bring disaster upon all these people, but I will give you your life as a reward wherever you go. I, the Lord, have spoken. 
And so I want to consider this man for this evening in the sermon because I, it's, it's powerful. We don't have another portion of Scripture quite like this where God gives a word. Like I said, it would be like a New Testament, an evangelist coming like we have next week who would call you out and give you a word. This is what it would be like. Barak is depressed. I don't know if you pick this up here. He's overwhelmed. He's frustrated. He says in our text, uh, uh, what uh, uh, I, the, God says in verse 3, you, you say, you have said, I'm overwhelmed with trouble. I haven't, I had enough pain already, and now the Lord will add more. I am, a, I'm worn out from sighing and can find no rest. Here's Barak. He's, he's frustrated. It says before this that he was the one who had written everything down uh, that Jeremiah had dictated to him. Much of the book of uh, Jeremiah was probably dictated to Barak. He's probably the one who's written down most of what Jeremiah has said. And you uh, can read that. There were messages that went back and forth. There were all sorts of different things uh, that were happening uh, that uh, there. But this really refers to the event that took place in chapter 36 of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he, you know, Barak was told to write down. God was speaking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in hiding because he feared that the king, because he kept telling everyone that disaster was coming upon the land. It's not going to be good. There were false prophets rising up saying, oh, no, God's going to deliver us. It's going to be good. You'll smash the yoke of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He's not coming into the land. It's all going to be good. And he's, Jeremiah's like, no, 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 no. Israel is problem. You're backslidden. You're frustrating God. You're fighting against uh, the very God's promised this. He's already said this. This goes back to Hezekiah's time that, uh, you know what, judgment is coming for the idolatry. Uh, it got passed over Hezekiah. It was about to happen. Then Josiah came on the scene. He was a good king uh, until the very end. He got stupid at the end. Uh, but uh, he was a good king uh, and God passed it. But it's his sons now that are wicked. And God says enough is enough. Chapter 36, during the fourth year of Jeroboam, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, the Lord gave this message to Jeremiah. Get a scroll and write it down, my message against Israel, Judah, and other nations. Begin with the first message back in the days of Josiah. Write, write down every message. Uh, right, right up to the present time, and perhaps the people of Judah will repent when they hear the terrible things that I planned for them. Then I will be able to forgive their sins and wrongdoings. So Jeremiah sent Barak, the son of Nerah, as Jeremiah had dictated all the prophecies that the Lord had given him. Barak wrote them on a scroll. Then Jeremiah gave them to Barak. I'm a prisoner, unable to go. To the temple. 
So what is happening here is Barak writes down all these prophecies. He's writing down all these things. uh, And the hope was Josiah, his repentance had come when he was rebuilding the temple that had been neglected. And as he's rebuilding, he finds this scroll, and this is the scroll probably many believe that Isaiah had prophesied about the coming destruction, and Hezekiah had repented, and Josiah reads it and goes, oh my gosh, we're under judgment. We need to get our hearts right right now, and the nation repents. He does a, he celebrates the Passover, and it says they hadn't done that since, like that since the time of Samuel. When the nation was not divided. And they have this, and then his sons come on the scene. So they're hoping maybe this will work. So Barak writes these all down. He's the one. He has to take it to the king. Now, he's now identified. This is dangerous stuff. The king could have you imprisoned. Jeremiah's already already in prison because he's, you know, because they don't like his prophecies. He goes over, he takes it first to the temple, and he reads it there. He does, then the king wants to meet with the people, he goes and meets with them. He brings this scroll of the prophecy to the king. Verse 20 of Jeremiah 36, then the officials left the scroll for safekeeping in the room of the Elamisha, the secretary, and went down to tell the king what happened. And the king sent a man to get the scrolls, and Judiah brought them and, uh, from the room and read them to the king. And as all the officials stood by, it was late autumn. And the king was winterized part of the palace, sitting in front of a fire to keep warm. And each time... Judiah finished reading three or four columns. The king took a knife, cut the scroll section, and threw it in the fire. And it was burned up. How would you feel if everything you'd done was simply burned up and rejected? That's where Barak is. Did all this work, all this hope... And the king's response is to just throw it in the fire. That's what I think of you. That's what I think of your work. Verse 32. So it says, so Jeremiah took another scroll. And dictated again to his secretary, Barak. And he wrote everything that had been on the scroll. King Jochayim had burned in the fire. Only this time, he added more. One of the most frustrating things to do in life is to have to redo something you already did. Right? That's why God bless mothers. Got to make the bed again. Didn't you make it yesterday? Well, yeah, but we slept in it then, and now it's got to be made again. <laughs> Guys, don't, when my wife goes away, I'm going to tell on myself, when my wife goes away, I never make the bed. I'm just going to get in and mess it up again. I know she's shocked. She can't believe that that would actually come out, but it's true. 
right? Right? Life has that frustration. We're frustrated, especially when we have to redo something that we already did. When we did it right and by no fault of our own, it's taken away. I can imagine this was very frustrating and discouraging to Jeremiah. This is labor-intensive writing down. It's not like you just had, you know, could go down to Staples and get a bunch of big pens so that you could write it down or type it out on your computer. This writing was laborsome. You had to dip it in. You had to make sure there were blots. You had to make sure that the ink didn't write, you know. Then you had to throw away the quill and get another one. And there was just this constant uh, flow that you had to make it legible. If you've ever seen old handwritten documents. I, uh, my wife and I, when we were in Ireland, we were very privileged to, uh, we would fly over to England for the, for the Bible conference for London, and we had two choices to get there, either really early in the morning or get there a little late for service. So we would go early in the morning. And we would go run around and play in London. London's a great city to do that. And we went there one time in the National Museum, which is free, and like the Smithsonian's here, had the Magna Carta on display. And they had actually flown over a copy of the Declaration of Independence, which is so ironic for that to be on display in London. I mean, if you understand history, that's just like really ironic. And they were saying, they were showing these, well, these are all handwritten documents. And I'm looking at the Magna Carta, the actual original. You have to go in this room. It's special lighting. It's, you know, very, you know, so that the paper won't deteriorate and such. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, man, I can't really read that. It's handwritten. It's old English style. It's, uh, it's just like, wow. You know, I don't know if you've ever, when I was in school, I, w- I had banned penmanship anyway, but well, you know, when I would start a report, handwritten report, it would look really good. And by the end, right? And we're talking like a one or two page report. By the end, you know, my, it just looks messy and horrible. He's got to do this not once, but twice. And we can be in the same place. We can feel like, you know what, we've done this before. I, this was labor intensive, and I got to do it again? And he's right in the will of God. But this is very discouraging, and it's set in on him. Then factor in the devil, factor in the political climate, very hostile towards God at this time. And Barak is very discouraged. Asaph was David's song leader. And he wrote a song, and it's Psalm 73, and it's a mark, it's a, a, a interesting psalm. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I'd almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, 
And I was almost gone. I, for I envied the proud when I saw the, them prosper despite their wickedness. And you read on, and what Asaph is saying is, I was having a pity party. You know the sad thing about pity parties? No one else wants to attend your pity party. They just don't. And that makes you feel more justified to have a pity party. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going out to eat worms. Ever sing that song? First you bite the head off. You suck the juice out. Throw the skins away. You'll be surprised how many do survive eating worms three times a day without water. Yes, eating worms three times a day. That's an old poem of people who live on self-pity. Because it's a horrible feeling to do that. He probably felt at this moment that his life had no impact. Verse 24 of Jeremiah 36 says, Neither the king nor the attendant showed any sign of fear or repentance to what they heard. Verse 3 of our text, I am overwhelmed with trouble. Haven't I had enough pain? Now the Lord has added more. I am worn out with my sighing and I can find no rest. He's losing spirit. This is something that Paul warns about in the New Testament. Galatians 6.9 Do not get tired of doing what is good, for in the right time we will reap a blessing if we don't give up. Paul says that, you know what, this is a reality that we face as human beings. We can become discouraged by doing the same thing and functioning and feeling like this is going nowhere. First Kings chapter 18 tells us about a powerful prophet named Elijah. And Elisha, he, he goes, uh, takes, confronts the prophets of Baal. They, you know, they, uh, he, he kills them and, and God does uh, great things. But there's no change in the nation. The people are still kind of, well, you know, I don't know, maybe Baal, maybe the Lord, maybe Baal, maybe the Lord, maybe, I don't know. And so he runs off gets under a juniper tree. In chapter 19, verses 3 and 4, it says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Bathsheba, town of Judah, and left his servant there. Isolation is part of self-pity. He went on alone in the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. Lord, it's enough. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. He's troubled in his spirit. There's no rest. It's always turmoil. Paul says, for instance, this is just an illustration. But he said, when I arrived in Macedonia, this is 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6, he said, I had, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict on every side, battles without fear within. But the Lord God who encourages us 
who encourages the discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. We can lose perspective. Self-pity, and this is what Barak is going through right now, because of legitimate discouragement, he's now lost perspective. And God has to speak to him. In our text, this is not the word that most people would want. Verses 4 and 5 of our text, Barak, this is what the Lord says, I will destroy the nation that I built. I will uproot and plant. Are you seeking good, great things for yourself? Do not do it. I will bring disaster upon these people, but I will give your life as a reward to you wherever you go. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Part of this was, not, was deeply not personal towards Barak. He was in a time, he was born into a season of great difficulty because Israel was backslidden. Had he been born in David's time, had he been born in Solomon's time, I'm sure it would have been very different. But now he's born in this time when Israel and Judah, Israel, the top, the top ten nations, they're already in captivity. They've already been scattered. They will never be a nation again at this point. Judah is about to go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. We'll read about that time through the book of Ezekiel, through the book of Daniel. Through some of the books of Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra. That captivity time. Good people were affected because of the sin. Bad people. There are times where things are taken personally, but they're not meant personally. There's economic downturn. Ninety... Almost 100 years ago now, was the Great Depression began. October 27th, I think it was, 1929, the stock market crashed. Had great effect. I remember it being one of the anniversaries of that, and the stock market had dumped 500 points at that point, which was quite significant of its... The, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and it had dumped that, and, and, and it, was, it was just it was nervous. Like, I had not lived through that yet. I remember my wife and I sitting at breakfast talking about what was happening and where this would go. Remember that? You know, on West Main Street. There's times of war. There's times of political upheaval. There were Christians in Nazi Germany. There were Christians in 1917 in Russia. There were Christians in 1941 Europe. Wars going on. Not personal. It's happening. There's times in life where things are going to happen 
that are far bigger than just you or I. You can't let those spin out your Christianity. You can't let circumstances, because it's not what you thought it should be. Life is going to be full of upturns. I've seen, I, you know, we're seeing the housing market beginning to go down. It's, in my lifetime, this is the third time I've seen major corrections. They seem to work out. Things get heated again and, you know, things go up and it's, you know. Remember the 1989. Remember talking to one neighbor. I had, we bought a house in 1998. And he said, I'm still under what I could sell. I bought it for more than I could sell it for now. He goes, but I could make the payments and we're doing okay. Wasn't personal. Wasn't like, I'm going to get Joe and Jane Smith. They're going to, you know, I'll ruin the whole economy just to get them. Things happen. This nation in general that God is speaking to had lost the plot. Not every single person, but just in general. Mar- Ma- Matthew 5.45, in that way, you'll be acting as true children of light, your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight both on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Sometimes in life, things just happen and it has nothing to do with you personally. Not like God's trying to punish you or get you or this or that. Sometimes it just affects everything. That's what Barak is hearing. He's also seeing things wrong. He's looking for great things for himself. It's a dangerous place when you're using the world's standards for your satisfaction. When you're using what great things could he be looking for? Position, fame, television ministry? I don't know. What was he looking? What, what was the thought and process that he's... We're, we're never told. We're never told if he was trying to be a real, real estate tycoon or if he thought, you know, uh, maybe he could invest in tours to take the Babylonians around Jerusalem and show them all the hotspots. I don't know. We don't know what he was thinking. Right? We just don't know that he was planning these things, but what is brought up in this is that he's probably measuring his life in the wrong way. If you measure your uh, your life simply based on money and success, you're missing missing out what it's really about. I've been rich, I've been poor, I'd rather be rich. I get that statement. I understand when people say that. But is that really the measure of life? He who dies with the most toys wins. Do you really believe that bumper sticker? I've seen people with lots of toys. Well, I would say at the end, they didn't win. 
I read an illustration this morning about Larry King's seven divorces. Mark chapter 4, these smell among, these seeds fell among the thorns, represented those who hear the word of God, but are all too quickly, the message is crowded out with the worries of life, the lure of riches, and the desire from other things, so they produce no fruit. Let me just add here, there will be times where God will rebuke you. Personally, sometime. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, shut up and listen to my son. I mean, that's what he says in a nice way. He says it a little nicer than I just did. He didn't say shut up, but that's what he, that's what he said. Thomas, one believing Thomas, come here. Put your hands in my holes. You said you wouldn't believe unless you could put your hand in my side. Go ahead. Oh, my Lord, my God. God will rebuke. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that, you know what? There are times where God will spank his children. And it's never pleasant at the moment. I can't imagine Barack's going, oh, thank God I got this feels so much better now. I can't imagine that. But it says God will spank his children. He will discipline you when you're not doing well. He'll discipline you for your bad attitude, for your bad behavior. He doesn't do that to be cruel. He does that because one is he's not going to leave you as an orphan. And second, He's not going to allow you to continue in that behavior thinking you're doing well. God does not mind doing this. Are you seeking good things? Don't do it. Don't do it. In most translations, there's an exclamation point there. It's not soft and cuddly. You know what? You shouldn't touch the hot stove. Next time you do that, it's stop! Don't do it! That's the way it's, that's the way God is speaking to Jeremiah. It's put out there in a forceful way. You know, before we look at the promise of this word that is there, Barak was a good man. What's very interesting at this point, this is the last time we'll read about him. And I don't know that that's because he didn't do right. I think he did do right. But from there on, the book of Jeremiah, is, it's only got a few chapters left. You start reading the prophecy against, you know, uh, Egypt, the prophecy against Philistines, prophecy against, uh, you know, the Ammonites, the prophecy against this, the prophecy against that. 
And then Jeremiah's last few chapters is the actual invasion of Nebuchadnezzar's troops, uh, them getting Jeremiah out of jail, the king uh, making sure that he's taken care of, uh, the end of uh, the king who doesn't even be this one. There's another one who uh, comes into the scene and gets his eyes gorged out and is taken away blind. It's a whole... Horrible scenario. But what is very interesting, what if, what if this was the last message that Barak had? When I was in China, I actually, it was a unique day for me. It was a Sunday. And I actually preached three sermons in three different churches in one day. What had happened is I had gone to China, I was preaching uh, one church, uh, and uh, went from Daguan to Guangzhou, and when I went there, the service was in the morning, we drove up, which was a time when I prayed in tongues the entire time, because the driver, I'm not sure if he bought his license or how he got it, but I know he didn't take a test to get it. And so he almost cut off a bus, and the bus driver was mad, and I got it, and he saw that, I, you know, there's a white guy in the back seat, and, you know, and, and probably looking even whiter than I am now because of the way he was driving, and so, you know, uh, it was just kind of that, and I got there, I preached in, uh, for Pastor Bert Fladeris, who was uh, there in China at the time in the leadership church, and he's going to come preach a revival for us next year, and uh, he's a great man, I love Bert and Herta, and uh, then Alfie Fisher who's now down in Pennsylvania, was pastoring there in China. And he had heard, and he had an 8 o'clock service. Pastor Flodiris's service was at 5 o'clock. So I preached, we went out, got an ice cream, and I went over and preached for Alfie. What we didn't know is the police had been there earlier that day. By the end of that week, Alfie and Barbara Fisher would be deported from China. We didn't know that. The service I preached in that church was the last service. None of us had any idea that this would be the last time. I rejoice that I preached a very encouraging, lasting message. A sermon I preached here. It's called the Gospel in One Verse. It's Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-seven. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Prayed for people to get filled with the Holy Spirit. No idea. We had no idea that the police had been there. The next day was Memorial Day. All the American missionaries gathered together. We had a great time. A little barbecue. We had service that night, get a call the next morning that Alfie's been detained. They would never have church again. I don't know what happened to those people. I'm not even sure Alfie did because contact would become dangerous at that point. This was Barack's last word. We don't read of him again. It's fascinating to think God will speak. He's very faithful. But you must respond correctly when he speaks. He does end this with a wonderful promise. And that promise is the promise of protection. 
That's the promise here. He says, you know what? In the midst of craziness, God will take care of you. I will give you your life. Exodus 9, 4. But the Lord God made a distinction between the livestock of Israelites and that of the Egyptians. Not one single Israelite animal died. God has a way of taking care of his people. There was a church in Toronto, Canada, that when in 1929, when the Great Depression hit, the pastor obviously was very nervous of, of how this was all going to play out and, and finances and things and such. And very interesting, in his congregation, only three people lost their job. And he went back and looked at the records, and it was, the th- it was three people who would not tithe. All the tithers kept their job. Fascinating. God will take care of his people. One man wrote these words. He said, the final words to Barak are are persistent to Christians. Christians live in a world that is doomed for destruction. A Christian who seeks great things from himself or seeks to become great on the earth is short-sighted. Christians should simply be faithful to what God requires and rejoice in the fact that they will escape the eternal coming judgment. That's number one. Let me add here, a lot of babies here, a lot of mothers, they read the verse... Pray that your flight is not in winter, that you're not with a newborn. That's for the Jewish people. That has to do with the tribulation, has nothing to do with the church. So, don't worry. Have as many kids as you want. That's not what that verse is talking about. And I have a feeling we're going to have a lot more soon enough. It always fascinates me. I'll just put this out there. I, I honestly believe I read once that if, if the men had had children instead of the women, Cain and then the entire human population would have died off. And I believe that. <laughs> but a woman, delivery room, 10 minutes after delivery, we could have another one. <laughs> God bless you, Mom. That's all I can say. God bless you. Thank God bless you. Anyway. God also promises in here a future. I'm going to take care of you. God says, I'm going to give you your life. God's not just going to spare him. There would be moments, I'm sure. We all saw the pictures, horrific pictures, and I, and I can really picture this in my mind, having lived in Eastern Europe, of those holding their suitcases, their entire worldly belongings, as they're trying to escape the oncoming Russian army just trying to get down the road, just trying to get away. There's still thousands and thousands, mostly women and children, that have been evacuated from Ukraine that are all scattered throughout all of Europe. Some only escaped with the clothes on their back. They'll rebuild their lives. 
Some of them will actually settle in the West. They'll get an opportunity that they would have never had had there not been the war. You know, I, I personally, I have a very nice house and we've got a great church building. Both are courtesy of COVID. Although it was a great disaster, it can turn into blessing. God will take care of us through frustrating times. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. The Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on towerlets so that a runner can see the correct message. The vision is for a future time and describes an end and it will be fulfilled. It's, if it seems slow coming, wait patiently for it, for it surely will take place and it will not delay. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. You can secure your future by simply trusting in God. Now, this being said, God, I'm not saying God's, yeah, the economy's going to fail, we're, we're all going to start, you know, be a, a moment away from start. I'm not saying that. But in discouragement, you can trust God. That's what Barak is learning. God wants to help him. See, this message gives us great hope. There's three lessons you can take away from Barak. First, God doesn't give up on people. He's discouraged. He's frustrated. He's complaining. He's being a snit. And God doesn't say, Barak, good luck, dude. Go deal with the Babylonians. You're in big trouble. God says, no, I'm patient. My servant. I love him. I'm going to help him. He also knows when things are not ideal. He knows. He's aware. You know what? It's not the way it, you know, the old expression. I, I said it to somebody recently. I say it a lot, actually. Life happens while you're making other plans. Right? Our plans are to be rich and healthy and successful and have all the good things. And you know what? Transmissions fall out of cars and furnaces blow up and all of these other issues of life that can be frustrating, terrifying. You get phone calls. We're closing today, right? No, we're not closing at all. And to have someone step up and help us, it was a great blessing. It just, but it's very strange. God knows when things aren't ideal. And God will speak to us even when we're not speaking right, not thinking right. He says, Barak, come here. Let me give you a reality check here. I want to help you. I want to move for you. I want to consider you, but you are going to have to hear what I say. We don't know how it all played out, but I believe that had it not played out well, we would know that. The Israeli people are going to go into captivity. Jeremiah is going to stop writing at that point. 
It's now going to switch over to Ezekiel the prophet. He's going to become the main prophet. Barak probably goes into captivity where God had said, you know what, while you're there, 70 years, plant your gardens, build your houses, marry your wives, have your children, just live your life. And at the end of 70 years, I'll bring you back to the promised land. God will speak even when you're thinking wrong. He's faithful. He loves us that much. He wants to help us. The lesson of the God of Barak, that God is faithful to get our attention even when we're not doing, speaking what is right. God is still faithful to us. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. You're here this evening. Maybe you've come and you're not right with God. You're not saved. Or maybe you're backslidden. The wonderful promise here is that God still speaks when you were in your sin. God is still going to speak. His message is repentance. His message is get it right. But he's looking for you and I to respond to God, to himself, and to let him speak to our lives. When I was a sinner, came into a service like this, it was a Sunday night in July of 1984, I didn't understand everything that was going on, but I knew God was drawing me to himself. And that when I went to the altar and prayed, God touched me and made himself real to me. I didn't understand everything, but I was changed that night. And maybe you're here. This evening, you're not right with God. You're not Savior. You're back. So you need to get your heart right. God is speaking to you. Slip up your hand. Say, pray for me. I need, to, I need to get my heart right with God. Anyone at all. Maybe you're like Barack. You got discouraged. You, you were serving God. But it was frustrating. It was, you felt like you're... There was no impact. There was no movement. There was no future. There was, you know, it was, it was you know, the treadmill, the, the constant uh, circles and the round and round, and I'm getting nowhere. And maybe you became like him, discouraged, weary. I'm worn out with my sighing. I'm worn out with my... And you think, you know what, I'm, I'm not right with God. I need to get my heart right because of that. Slip up your hand. Maybe it's not blatant sin. It's just a, something in your heart. Changing the call then to Christians. There's also a great hope in our text. That even in the midst of our discouragement, even in the midst of our frustration, God is going to speak and help us. Let's all stand. Let's talk to God. These altars are open. We're going to sing that song, Glorified. Worship His name. Lord, I come.